The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to Utah Symphony, Utah Opera's Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists that make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. We are still recording from quarantine and wanted to bring part three of our mini-series Music Heals to you today. The first show, if you recall, we talked about the history of how classical music has played a role in healing during times of crisis. And in our second show, we went to you, the listeners, to provide some personal anecdotes about how our art forms have helped you in times of need. We thought it might be good to close this series out by taking a little bit of a deeper dive into our specific industries. And for that purpose, I'd like to invite Christopher Macbeth, Artistic Director of Utah Opera and frequent Ghostlight contributor to the podcast. Welcome, Christopher. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. We're in really, the word unprecedented gets used a lot, but I mean, it really is for the world at large and also for our art form. And I know you've talked about in meetings about being in sort of war room situations, trying to figure out where we are and where we're going. As you're trying at the top level to sustain the organization in the immediate crisis, you're also making a lot of plans for how we're going to appear as an organization in the future. What kind of things can you share about how the organization may be moving forward? You know, I was just writing to someone this morning that, uh, you know, for the last few weeks, it feels like we've been in triage mode, you know, just trying to stop bleeding, trying to take care of each other and make sure that there's as little damage as possible. And we're just really beginning to now move into the next phase, which is where do we go from here? Not an easy thing to do when there are so many unanswered questions from our local governments, our state government, our federal government about what will be allowable. That seems to be changing almost daily in terms of what you hear in the news and and when we will be able to do what. Uh, so uh, we keep making all these contingency plans uh, for what we can do, uh, case in point. Um, will there be any kind of a Deer Valley Music Festival this summer? And if so, what will that look like? And who will say that we can actually do it? Uh, because it's hard to find uh, two different constituencies that agree on anything when it comes to dates and numbers and anything along those lines. Um, so to say that we're making plans might, it feels immediate at this moment, like a little bit of an overstatement. Uh, I, I will say we're making several different plans and some of them bleed into each other and it's all depending on the circumstances. But we are starting to turn that corner and think forward about what we can be doing, how we can be fulfilling our vision to connect the community through great live music. Uh, but there are so many questions about when we can and how we can uh, that it's, it's I, I be honest with you, it's all a little confusing and convoluted right now. You know, Christopher, I, um, it occurs to me that no matter what the answers are to any of those questions that you are asking yourselves in boardrooms, that this industry is going to be especially hard hit by this regardless. And I think that's true for both companies the size of Utah Opera and for individual artists. I brought this up in the first episode, how I'd been hearing from colleagues how much this was going to hurt. And this is the way they felt a couple of months ago. I can't imagine how they're feeling now. So what are you hearing from artists and managers who suddenly have these 
empty calendars for the foreseeable future. I mean, aside from trying to stay busy, what are they doing to make sure they stay viable? For the past few weeks, I, you know, since mid-March, the, the main thing we've heard from artists and managers is a great deal of pain, not only because, of course, canceled contracts, loss of revenue, uh, but uh, we all know performers, uh, their way of living is through performing. And all of a sudden, this has been taken away from them. And uh, so we've, we keep hearing that pain, but it's been a lot of fun to watch as performers need to perform, uh, how many are finding different ways of doing it. Most are using a method similar to what we're doing here with Zoom and video conferencing materials and making videos and whatnot. And uh, there's it ranges from all sorts of things. Uh, most recently, uh, the players of the Utah Symphony, of course, we all know, did that wonderful Beethoven Five and found a creative way to do that. We've the wonderful world-class soprano who was to have made her role debut with Utah Opera in Thais, in the title role, uh, has been doing a daily series where she always puts on her purple house robe, and that's what she calls it, her purple robe series. Uh, and those have been really meaningful because Nicole and people like her not only are sharing their art and what they have to offer, but they're also kind of sharing their heart and soul at the same time, that they're in front of us doing this because, uh, as a friend used to say, if you can get out of music, do. Well, they can't. They have to do this uh, for their soul. Um, and so in many ways, we've been seeing the veneer of tails and makeup and costume and wig removed and being able to see uh, the art form in a much more vulnerable, much more transparent way. And so that's that's been interesting to watch the different uh, the different artists bring those things to our communities. And it's been a lot of fun to share um, with our audience members. I like I like forwarding things or making sure it gets on our social networking platforms. Where we go from here is, is going to be the interesting part. So Christopher, earlier you mentioned Utah Symphony, Utah Opera's mission, which is connect the community through great live music. That might be a bit of a paraphrase. People have been connecting with our art form through TV screens, through computer screens, through earbuds in this last month because there is no live music in the concert halls. So how are you looking at that as infecting the future of our art? Yeah, that's a great question. This has been a uh, point of, of discussion at throughout the industry. I connect with uh, the leaders of all the different opera companies once a week through Opera America, um, and this is this has been a big point. If the case is that we can no longer gather groups of 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, in the case of the Met, 4,000 uh, people in one space sitting elbow to elbow and sometimes what feels like back to knee and whatnot, uh, depending on the circumstance, uh, to have that beautiful, transformative communal experience in sharing uh, live performance and getting that oral experience that you, you can't get through speakers only in a concert hall or in an opera house or in a theater, then what does that mean? So that where my mind goes with that is 
we may be at the point that we are forced to deal with a phase change in audience behavior that we've been attempting to grapple with through various means for the better part of a decade, really. Um, while you, Carol, you, Jeff, myself, and many people our age and more advanced in their life than we are, um, their formative experience was exactly that, in a live experience, in a purely non-amplified experience, um, because it's just one of the most exquisite, beautiful things ever. Um, the audiences coming up, the young people, that hasn't always been their formative experience. And I would take it even further to say their formative experiences have been defined by speakers, by computer screens, by phone screens. And while we will always attempt to introduce them to what we think is a superior experience in terms of live and, and not amplified, I think there may be a reality that we are going to have to find a way to work on parallel missions of not only uh, trying to bring people into our world, but finding a way to bring our art form and what we can offer into theirs. And we're, it, it's going to become a greater necessity. And I think if one wants to go in the direction of silver lining and positivity, hopefully not Pollyanna, uh, one can say, we've just been given an opportunity by necessity to find a way to, to do this and to at least explore how we can reach out and connect ourselves with our audiences. How we're going to connect audiences to each other, I think, is the great question that needs to be answered. But we are going to have to go on that path of discovery and figure it out. You know, Christopher, you mentioned silver linings and turning a challenge into an opportunity. And I think that's a great way to be thinking about the situation we're in. And I know that opera as an art form is not one that always translates well to the various platforms you're talking about being so formative for young consumers these days. The Met has certainly figured out how to, way to, how to make it work in movie theaters. That I would call basically a not very different format than a concert stage, to be honest with you, because of the, the breadth and scope. But I wonder, speaking of silver linings, do you feel that the opportunity to approach new ways of presenting opera and making it more Catholic, small c across all these platforms, is that something that you look forward to? Is that something you're excited about? You, you seem to think it's needed to happen for a while. Yeah. I'm excited about it. I think I'm turning the corner on a personal level towards that, quite honestly. And that's that's being pretty darn honest and candid. Um, uh, of course, when you love something dearly, whether it's, it's an experience or, or a place or whatever, you, you want to share it in a way that others will find a similar feeling uh, that you do. Um, but like so many other things, there's a reality that some people just aren't going to get there. But it is our responsibility to find a way to bring our art form and enable the artists to bring what they have to offer to the audiences, whatever the way is that they can find their way to love it the way we do. I was thinking um, as 
you were talking about connecting through screens and stuff, that there'll never be a substitute for the energy exchange from stage to audience. I mean, I think we're seeing that in Zoom conferencing, that even in a conversation, you're not getting the same energy that you do in an office face-to-face. I am hoping it'll end up being a side-by-side transition rather than a either-or, that it's an and. Yeah, and I, and I think that, like I said, we're gonna have to work on parallel courses. I will say, um, just as another way of looking at it, having had more time than I remember in my life to watch TV and watch what modern day filmmakers are doing and um, TV program makers are doing, um, I've been surprised how emotionally moved and how connected I can get with drama, with characters, with concepts, through how modern day presentations on the television uh, can make me feel. And maybe maybe there's something we need to look at there. Maybe there is a, a more of a commonality between uh, directed, filmed presentations and live presentations than I wanted to feel there were uh, up, up until this very moment, maybe perhaps. So uh, anyway, I'm, I'm trying to be as open-minded as I can about it because I believe in all of these artists and, and that my job is to support them and enable them as much as possible. I'm trying to find a way through this that says we will survive even if for either the foreseeable future or even if it becomes a new normal in our lifetimes, that we can't gather large groups of people together in a performance space. I gotta say, Christopher, I hadn't thought about it until this exact moment either, but as a uh, fellow uh, consumer of pop culture on the small screen, the idea of the showrunners from, I don't know, something like Westworld getting a hold of a ring cycle and presenting it on television sounds amazing to me. It really does. I think there's got to be fertile ground there. I have to believe it. I find it fascinating that we've had kind of in the industry an enforced pause to stop and think about these things. And maybe we wouldn't have gotten there if we were still busy putting live theater on the stage because that is all consuming in our schedule. And it's almost like you don't have brain space to think about these other options. So we've all had to stop and think. That's a great point. One could argue that we have seen some diminishment of our audiences over the years and that no one had found a silver bullet to necessarily reverse that trend. I think maybe if there was some denial on the parts of producers like me and uh, boards that perhaps a silver bullet could be found, maybe, maybe this is a chance to consider that there might not be a silver bullet. But more importantly, like I said, I, and to your point, Carol, I think, I think we need to be doing both. I think we need to continue to be finding ways to share what we love and grew up with, uh, with the live performance, but also working on what other mediums might, might be. So for the moment, that's where my mind is. Uh, I'm not ready to condemn yet the the old ways of doing things because they still live in my heart. And for a, a great, a large part of our audience, I know it lives in theirs. Uh, but you're right. We are being forced to consider other options right now. 
So, uh, Christopher, you're speaking to us with a Zoom background of our beautiful Capitol Theater. And I know our audience has been asking this. Are we going to get to see Barbara Seville in Thais on the Capitol Theater <laughs> stage? Uh, I have to back, ask. Back to brass tacks. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, and I hope some one of one of our very smart podcast people must have noticed that I made sure my last name wasn't at the bottom of the screen since I am in the theater here. <laughs> uh, we do have plans, and I've already uh, spoken to the cast, I've spoken to the conductor, I've spoken to the director uh, to bring Barber to the Capitol Theater in the 21-22 season. Uh, it would be a shame to have gone through three weeks of it wasn't painstaking work, but it was intense work uh, for a very complicated production, honestly. Um, so it would have been a shame not to have presented that to our audience. So we're looking forward to doing that in a couple of years. That's great news. That was a really special, it was some special magic that was being created and it, it felt like we just had it stopped suddenly. Yeah. I mean, well, we did. It was an interruptus of some form, that's for yes. sure. <laughs> I think you'd be surprised, Christopher, how much that question has actually come up. People really, I think, were sad to see that production uh, halted. And they'll be thrilled to hear it first on the Ghostlight podcast that it's possible they will get an opportunity in the in a coming season. You've got a lot on your plate, we know, and you are working very hard to try to figure out what's not only best for your company, but for this art form. And we appreciate you taking some time today to talk to us about specifically what's happening in the opera world. It's been incredibly informative. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. Always a pleasure. Good luck to us all. Well, Jeff and Christopher, this has been a great discussion to wrap up our mini series on music that heals during this time of pandemic. Please subscribe to us and like us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, wash your hands. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thank you for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.